Our sermon text this morning is a short one. It's Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 30. And this is our custom out of respect for the word of God. I'll ask if you're able to do so that you might stand for the reading of God's word today. Mark 8, verses 27 to 30. Give ear to the reading of God's holy word today. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist And others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's let's pray and ask God to bless his word to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth, the mouth of our God. And we ask today that you would work on us by your spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. Renew our minds, transform our lives by the time we spend here with you. Lift up Christ in all that we say, for it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, for some of us, it's been a while since we were in school. You might have uh, foggy memories of of, uh, what that might have been like, but... When you were in school, maybe, you know, high school, middle school, college, whatever the case, did you ever have a teacher give you a pop quiz? You ever have a teacher just walk in the room, you know, no, almost no good morning. It's just, okay, everybody put your books down, get your pencils out. And everybody, a cold chill went down everybody's spine. And uh, we've, everybody wondered if they read the, if they did the reading or didn't do the homework. Pretty terrifying words for most, most students. Um, well, what's the, what is the purpose or what should it be? What, what is the purpose of a pop quiz besides scaring the students? Uh, what, what is the reason that you give a pop quiz or a quiz in general? It's usually to see kind of, to kind of see if the students are tracking with the material, to see if they're paying attention, keeping up with the work, seeing if they're, if they're learning the material properly. It's kind of a way to gauge progress along the way. It's not your final grade. It's not to pass or fail. Usually the students... But you find out from a pop quiz or from a quiz, if they do poorly on that, they're they're probably not ready to move on to the next subject. And oftentimes, as is the case in most uh, most classwork, one subject or one thing builds on the previous thing. So if you don't master the previous material, you're not ready to move on to the next thing. Well, here in our short text in Mark chapter 8, Jesus kind of gives his disciples and also through them, us as well, a pop quiz of sorts. Now, not to be not to be trite about it, but it's a quiz, and it's only two questions long. So, not much of a of a percentage. If you get one wrong, you've already failed, right? Uh, well, the purpose is to see if they've been paying attention, to see if the crowds have been paying attention and learning the lesson that Jesus has been endeavoring to teach them all along the way through these first eight chapters of Mark's gospel. All these things they've heard from him and seen him do. Have they gotten the point? Have they learned what he's been trying to teach them all this time? Well, this morning in our short text here, uh, we're looking at what one commentator calls the central question of Mark's gospel. And I believe he's correct to say that. These two questions in this text deal with that one central question. And what is that question? Not a trick question. Who is Jesus? Who is he? If you think about it, there's, there couldn't be a more important question for anyone to ask and answer properly. 
Now, if you think of maybe some, some of us, you know, if you've been raised in the church, you've read the Bible for a long time, you've maybe read the Gospel of Mark through who knows how many times, it's very familiar to you. But maybe if it, if it weren't, maybe if you haven't read Mark's Gospel in a while, uh, the questions he asks, that Jesus asks here, might strike you as a little bit odd if you were to take the time to think about it. It's one thing, you know, what does he not ask? I think sometimes we read certain verses of scripture and kind of our brain translates them into something else. What he doesn't ask is, what do they say I am? Or what do you say I am? He says, who or whom? Whom do the, do the people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Well, it, it, it might seem like an odd question, but we, as we see in our text, the people had some very definite, maybe misguided, ideas or notions of who they thought he was. They, they had gotten sort of half the point, but they missed, missed it entirely in, in other ways. They suggest that he's John the Baptist, come back from the dead. They suggest that he's Elijah, returned from heaven, or maybe, maybe one of the other prophets, maybe Jeremiah or Moses, who knows what they thought. Well, this morning we're going to look at, at three things. We're going to look at the first two questions in order. The question of what the people were saying, the question of what the disciples themselves said, and then we're going to close by looking at Peter's great confession of Jesus as the Christ. Well, the first, first question Jesus asks, right? He asks what other people were saying about his identity. He says, who do people say that I am? Or, or who is it that people are saying commonly that I, that I am? And in verse 28, the disciples give a few of the answers that people had been suggesting. They, it says, they told him, John the Baptist and others say Elijah and others, one of the prophets. Now, if you've re- been following along in Mark's gospel, if, you, if you're keep it, kind of keeping up as we go along, you might know that this isn't the first time those very things were suggested. This isn't a shot in the dark. This isn't a new, a new thing. Just a couple short chapters ago in Mark chapter 6, Verses 14 to 16, Mark writes this. Mark 6, 14 to 16, King Herod heard of it. Now, what is it that he heard of? He heard the miracles that Jesus was doing and the miracles that he had sent his disciples to do when he had just sent them forth. So he heard about all these miracles, these crowds, and it says, King King Herod heard of it for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him, in in Jesus. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. So Herod had a, a guilty conscience. You might know the story of that. Herod had John thrown in prison. John had the, the, uh, the boldness to confront King Herod about his, about his adultery. He basically said to him, imagine a prophet, this oddly dressed prophet in, in you know, camel's hair and a leather belt, telling the king, even if he was a puppet king, he was still a king, telling him, hey, that, that, that wife you have, that's not your wife. In fact, that's your brother's wife, and it's not lawful for you to have her as your wife. You may be a king, but you don't make the law. And just because you make something law doesn't make it doesn't make it right. You are accountable, basically, to the lawgiver, just like every one of us. And so, what did Herod do? He had him thrown in prison, and he later had him beheaded. Well, he had, in a, in a, in a sense, in a wrong sense, he had a very high opinion of John the Baptist. Not enough to listen to him, 
not enough to heed his proclamation to him of God's law and his preaching of Christ. Um, But he had an oddly high view, but a wrong view. And his terrified conscience, when he heard about Jesus, thought, oh, no, he's coming back to get me, is probably what he was sort of thinking of. Well, so those ideas aren't new in Mark's gospel, that it could be that Jesus might have been Elijah or John the Baptist or someone else. Now, think about what we've been reading all this time. These crowds of literally thousands and thousands and thousands of people following Jesus in the middle of nowhere to the point where he has to feed them miraculously. The feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000. He is kind of a new Moses in that regard. He's feeding people with bread from heaven in the middle of nowhere. That, that tends to get people's attention. And people were connecting some of those dots, maybe not all the way, but they were starting to get the idea that you know there was a buzz going around. There was an excitement about who Jesus may have been. Everywhere he went, crowds followed. People knew, they didn't know exactly what, but they knew there was something very important going on with this man, Jesus. He wasn't just some rabbi. People didn't commonly, you know, talk to the, about their, their, their local rabbi and say, oh, he's Elijah. Oh, maybe he's... No, this was, Jesus was on a level wholly different than, than the people they were used to dealing with. Now, why Elijah? Of all the prophets you could pick, that you could say, maybe he's Elijah. Why did they pick Elijah? Well, a couple reasons. First, Elijah, you might know, Elijah never died. Two people in the Old Testament did not die, Enoch and Elijah. Second Kings 2.11 tells us that Elijah and Elisha, who was kind of his protege, his apprentice prophet, were talking along the way, and it says, Behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. God just took him and took him home. So he never died. And so people got the idea, we'll see also from Scripture, that he was going to come back, that there's a reason God took him and God was going to do something again with him. But there was also an expectation that Elijah was going to return prior to the coming of the Messiah. And why is that? Well, primarily it's because of the prophet Malachi, the last book of our Old Testaments. Malachi 3.1 says that God was going to send his messenger to prepare the way of the Lord. That's in agreement with Isaiah 40, verse 3 as well, which says much the same Thing, but what does Malachi four verses five to six say? It goes a lot more. It's a lot more specific about who that messenger was going to be. Listen to to Malachi four, five through six. It says, "Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction." So it wasn't just somebody. It wasn't just God is going to send a messenger, which of course he was. The messenger he was going to send was going to be, in some sense, Elijah himself. Now, you might know from your New Testament that the New Testament tells us in no uncertain terms that those prophecies of Malachi and Isaiah as well, Mark chapter 1, verses 2 to 3, for instance, actually quotes that passage, that those, those things were fulfilled particularly by John the Baptist. That John the Baptist is that Elijah that was uh, to come. Think about how John was dressed. It's easy, when I I was a kid, I would read these passages of John the Baptist wearing a camel's hair coat with a leather belt, eating gross things, you know, locusts and wild honey. And uh, I like the honey part, but not the other part. 
Um, you know, what, would you, what did I think of? I, in my head, I thought, well, that's just how people dressed. I would read those texts and say, I'm not even sure why Mark or whoever it was, you know, Mark or, or Matthew or whatnot. Like, why did they even bring it up? You know, it, of course, everybody probably wore that kind of thing back then. They were old. Everybody wore camel's hair and, and leather belt. No, it wasn't. In, in Jesus' day, to wear a camel's hair cloak and a leather belt was odd. You know, they didn't have Halloween, but if they did, someone would have said, hey, John, it's not Halloween. You know, what, look, look at the calendar, buddy. You know, why are you wearing this weird getup? Well, people didn't, people didn't look at John the Baptist and say, okay, you know, somebody, somebody's off his, uh, his pills today. They, they, what they said was, that's a prophet. It was the prophetic uniform, and more particularly, it was the prophetic uniform of Elijah. People got the hint. It was his prophetic uniform. It was a very big hint about who he had come in the mantle of. You might know that, that Elijah, when he was taken up, his mantle or his cloak was taken up by Elisha. And perhaps that itself might, might have been a big hint of the way God was going to fulfill that prophecy of Malachi, that Elisha took on the mantle. In other words, he took on the prophetic office of his predecessor, of Elijah. Well, John the Baptist did much the same thing. And in fact, Jesus himself in Matthew 11 says this about John the Baptist. Matthew 11:14. it says, if you are willing to accept it, he, John the Baptist, is the Elijah who is to come. So even Jesus himself said it right just like that. That guy, that guy was Elijah. That's the one that was promised before the coming of, of the Messiah. Now notice that the people in saying that, that, that Jesus may have been John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets, they were saying some pretty good things in a sense about Jesus. This was high praise. You know, they weren't commonly saying, oh, he's a charlatan, he's a liar, he's a used car, they don't have cars, but used car salesman, snake oil, you know, thing. They weren't saying bad things, they were saying what they perceived as good things. I mean, to put him on a level with one of the Old Testament prophets was a pretty big deal. There hadn't been one in hundreds of years. But it wasn't enough. Anybody but Jesus to say that, you know, if you were to say, you wouldn't say this, but, you know, Pastor Andy, he's, he's like one of the Old Testament prophets. That would be, I think, a compliment, although they weren't treated very well, so I might not want that compliment. Um, but for Jesus, it's, it's to say it's a put down, not an intended put down, would be an understatement. Jesus is not one prophet among many. He's not on a level with Moses or, or, or Elijah or Jeremiah. He's much much higher than that. To rank Jesus among those prophets, John the Baptist, Elijah, or the others, is to hold him in high esteem. It's to hold him in, in high esteem, but it's not nearly enough. Even to say he's the forerunner of the Messiah is not enough. That was John. That's not Jesus. It's the old, what's the old saying? You know, so close, yet so far away. Like they were close to having a grasp of who he was, but in some ways they were light years away. They had no... Real idea. They had enthusiasm about Jesus. They had a, what seems to our ears to be a very high view of who he was. But most of those crowds, the people in them, would have failed his pop quiz. They, they really missed the point. They failed to understand who he was and who he is. And they also failed to, to know and understand what he had come to do for their salvation, for the salvation of sinners. And that brings us to the second question that Jesus asks his disciples directly in verse 
29, what, what does he say? He says, who do you say I am? And, and when he says, but who do you say that I am? The word in the Greek, the word you is emphatic. You know, not to give you a grammar lesson and put you to sleep, but, in, you know, we have different ways of, of emphasizing words. You know, if you're using a, a computer and you're typing something, you might put it in bold print or italics or underline it or all the above. Well, they didn't have that. Uh, and, but in, in the Greek, uh, what they do often is they'll, they'll change the word order of a sentence. Well, it's practically the first word in the sentence. It's very hard to make it sound like good English. It's, he's practically saying, but you, what do you say I am? You got uh, enough of what they say. Who do, do you get the point? Who do you in particular say that I am? Now, this this isn't really the first time that that question had crossed the disciples' minds, even if Jesus himself hadn't asked it of them yet. Think back to Mark chapter 4, verse 41. That's when Jesus was in the boat with them, and he's asleep in the back of the boat, and something probably along the likes of, of a hurricane-level storm hits the sea, and they all think they're going to die, and they're all panicked. And what do they do? They wake Jesus up. You know, what are you doing sleeping in the back of the boat? I'm paraphrasing, right? We're all good. Don't you care that we're going to die? What does he do? What does he do? It says that he rebuked the wind. Verse 39. Normal people don't tend to do that. He rebuked the wind and commanded the sea, saying, be still. And what happened? Well, the storm, the wind stopped and the storm went away. And what happened to the disciples? Did they go, oh, that's a relief. Good thing we woke you up just in time. Thanks, Jesus. Go back to sleep now. No, it says that they, they, they feared exceedingly. They feared exceedingly, verse 41, and said to one another, this is the King James's rendering of it. I always like how this sounds. What manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this man that we have in the boat with us? Are we, are we safe with this guy in the boat? They asked that question of themselves a little bit differently a few moments before that. I don't feel very safe with him in the boat. Now they're saying, I really don't feel safe with him in the boat. What kind of person have we taken along for a ride with us? In other words, they, they were asking themselves, who is Jesus? This, this isn't what we've signed up for. This is not what we thought we were getting ourselves into. Well, make no mistake, the, the question he asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? You are meant to ask that of yourselves this morning. That The scripture is, it would have you and I ask ourselves, who do we say that Jesus is? It's one thing for us to speculate and say, well, here's what other people say. But at, at the end of the day, it almost doesn't matter what other people say. What matters is what do you say? What do you believe? I believe the Lord Jesus would have you and I ask and answer this question for ourselves. Who do you say that Jesus is? And it's not just an intellectual exercise. It's not, no disrespect intended, it's not a pop quiz. Nobody cares that much about a pop quiz. This is a, a question that's for keeps. It's for life and death. It might be the most important question you ever really ask yourself and have the right answer for. What do you believe about Jesus Christ? Who do you say in your heart of hearts that he is? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? That's Mark 1, 1, the first verse of the whole gospel. Mark tells you what his point is. It's the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. If you think about it, 
Peter's confession of Christ that we're going to get to in a minute, it's the point of everything Mark has written up to this point. He starts his gospel with it. And here we are in the middle, the center of his gospel, and he brings it up again and kind of puts an exclamation point on it. You know, the, the fact that, that Mark's, uh, his, his, uh, his writing of Peter's confession of Christ, of Jesus as the Christ, it's so short it almost jumps off the page. You know, Peter didn't give some long explanation. He gave, you are the Christ, period, exclamation point, as if to emphasize it. That's the point that Mark is making in the entire gospel. All those miracles that you read about, including the calming of that storm, is to point to us to the identity of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, and the only Savior of sinners. Now, there, there have always been a multitude of differing opinions and thoughts about who Jesus was and is. Uh, many people in Jesus' day obviously were confused about who he was. Many people in our day are very confused about who Jesus is and what he came to do. 2,000 years of history has done nothing to change that. People are just as confused, maybe more so, than they ever have been. You know, Some try to deny that Jesus ever existed. Pretty silly thing for someone to try to think. Uh, the Arians in the 4th century and their modern counterparts in our day, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they deny the full deity of Jesus Christ. They say he's a God with a small g. Well, they, they miss the point as well. Even Muslims typically consider Jesus to be a prophet. How that squares with what they teach, don't ask me. But they, they hold him to be much like these crowds did, in some sense, to be a prophet of God. Many people today like to think of Jesus as nothing more, even if he's a really good one, but of a good moral teacher, a good spiritual teacher, like a divine life coach or a spiritual personal trainer of sorts, helping us help ourselves, helping us to be a better us, as if that's all he came to do. In his book, you may have, some of you read this, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes this. It's a well-known, well-known paragraph. He says, a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Great moral teachers don't say the kinds of things that Jesus said. The prophets themselves, the apostles themselves, as great as they were, as much as God used them and gifted them, in many ways throughout the church's history, they never said the things, nor could they have said the things that Jesus says. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. What prophet ever would have dared utter those words? What apostle, Paul, Peter, or otherwise, would have ever taken it upon themselves to say such a thing? They never would have, but Jesus did. If he's not God incarnate, he's either a lunatic, a liar, or a demon from hell. But he's not. He's Lord, and he is God. And that is the option 
That is the thing that he would have us to do. C.S. Lewis is more than right. Jesus did not intend to leave that option open to anyone. It's patronizing nonsense at best. What we must do is fall at his feet as our Lord and our God and our Savior. Well, that brings us to Peter's answer to Jesus' question, his confession of Jesus as the Christ in verse 29. He just says, just like that, you are the Christ. No explanation, no long, drawn-out reasoning. Now, that great confession stands at the center of Mark's gospel. And it's in some ways, it really is the central point of what Mark is saying throughout his entire gospel, both before and after it. It's really the turning point of the entire gospel. Now, the brevity of, of Peter's answer, it's so short, it's so blunt, doesn't begin to do it justice. Now, we often give very little thought to what that word means, the word Christ, do we? Now, when I was a kid, I, I think I thought of it like Jesus' last name. I, I, that's all I thought. You, you, that's, it's like the second part of his name. My name is Andy Shriver. His name is Jesus Christ. Uh, there might be more to it than that, but that's kind of, uh, you know, it's just part of his name. And we don't often think about the fact that it's really a title, isn't it? It's a, it's a title rather than a name. Now, what, is the, what does it mean to confess Jesus as being the Christ? Have you ever thought about that? All the times we talk about the name, the title Christ, do we ever think about what it means? Well, you know, around Christmas time every year, not without reason, we, we, we talk about the name of Jesus. You know, why was Jesus named Jesus? What did the angel tell them? For he will save his people from their sin. You shall call his name, like you don't get to pick a name. The name's been picked for you. You know, you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The word Jesus means Yahweh or the Lord saves. That's what his name signifies something. Well, the the title Christ also signifies in much the same way a lot of things. Well, uh, rather than giving you my my definition, I'll give you the Heidelberg Catechism's definition. How's that for a, a deal? Heidelberg Catechism 31, it says, Why is he called Christ? meaning anointed or anointed one. Answer, because he has been ordained by God the Father and has been anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who perfectly reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God for our deliverance. Second, our only high priest who has set us free by that one sacrifice of his body and who continually pleads our cause with the Father. We just sang about that in the last song we sang. Thirdly, and our eternal King, who governs us by his word and spirit and who guards and keeps us in the freedom he has won for us. To, to confess Jesus as the Christ is to confess him as our ultimate prophet who reveals God to us, our ultimate high priest who made sacrifice of himself for us and right now lives forever to intercede at God's right hand for his people and also as our eternal king who governs us by his word and spirit and who doesn't just govern us, he what? He guards us and keeps us in the freedom he has won for us. All the things you see in the Old Testament that the prophets, the priests, and the kings did for the people of God were meant to point to the one who would be the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. He's, he's the ultimate revelation of God, of himself, to us. Hebrews 1, the first few verses of the book of, of Hebrews. He's the great high priest also in the book of Hebrews. He, he's, he's, what did John call him? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All those Old Testament sacrifices were meant to point to that one. That's why the temple became obsolete when he died 
on the cross. They had served their purpose and were no longer needed. And he is the eternal king. He's reigning right now at the right hand of God the Father. He's gathering and defending his church even now, making his enemies a footstool for his feet. Jesus is not sitting on his hands right now at God's right hand. He is reigning over all things for the sake of his church. So to say that Jesus is the Christ is to say that he's the anointed one or the Messiah. Christ is the Greek translation of the word in Hebrew, Messiah. They both mean anointed one, that he's been anointed by God the Father. So when Peter confessed Jesus is the Christ, Peter is saying in no uncertain terms that Jesus was no mere prophet. He's not just a prophet. He is a prophet, but he's not one among many. He's the one, rather, to whom all the prophets pointed forward to and spoke of throughout the entire Old Testament. To call Jesus the Christ or anointed one, it calls to mind what's often referred to by theologians as his, if this sounds strange, don't, don't worry about it, but it's called his threefold office, prophet, priest, and king. Those people were set apart by the Lord for those offices in the Old Testament, often by being anointed. That's how it worked. When David was, was chosen by God to be the king to take over from Saul, he was anointed by the prophet Samuel as a sign of his being set apart for office. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ fulfills all three of those offices, and all three of those offices are essential to our salvation from sin. There's a reason for those what we call offices. The Heidelberg says Jesus is the prophet. He reveals to us the will of God for our salvation in him. He makes known to us the Father. Think about that. Why is that? Do you and I as sinners outside of Christ, do we know God rightly on our own? Do we just naturally know God? We know he exists. We know his eternal power in Godhead, Romans 1 says. But do you know the Father apart from Christ? No, we don't. We don't. Not rightly. Not, not scripturally. Uh, Jesus, by his word and spirit, brings us to a right and true knowledge of God. As priest, as our great high priest, Jesus does what? He redeems us from our sins. Both its guilt, the guilt of our sin, and the corruption of our sin as well. By his one time, once for all sacrifice of himself on the cross. On the cross he died to pay the penalty for your sins and for mine. And even that, he intercedes right now. He's at work right now. The, the cross wasn't the only thing he did, although it was the chief thing he did. He is at work right now. He ever lives to intercede for us according to the will of of God. He's praying for you. If you're a believer in him, he's praying for you right now. He's, he's, he's representing you at the right hand of God the Father, so nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. As king, he governs us by his word and spirit. It's what he's doing every time you sit under the preaching of the word, every time you read his word, and he also guards us. Like, you know, kings were, were kind of the deliverers. You know, like Saul was supposed to defeat the Philistines. Why? For his people and for the glory of God. David was supposed to go to war against the, against the people of God's enemies to defend them, protect them. Well, we have, we have the king of kings going forth in battle to guard and protect us so that nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, one writer points out the central importance of Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. And he says that there can be seen there a sharp change after this a sharp change of tone and orientation starting here with Peter's confession. Now, what, what he's getting at is the fact that, you know, Jesus kind of hinted up to this point 
about his coming uh, death. Mark tells us back in in Mark chapter 3 that the Pharisees and the Herodians, Mark 3 verse 6, got together and plotted his destruction. Pretty early in Mark's gospel, they already wanted him dead. And they were doing everything they could to to make that happen. But Jesus, up until this point, has Jesus ever come right out and spoken of the cross? Of his, of his rejection, his betrayal, his death and resurrection. No, but now he does. Right after, Mar- right after Peter rather says, you are the Christ, the next thing Jesus brings up is the cross. He tells them, basically, bingo, but I bet you have the wrong idea about what the Christ is going to do. I bet you sort of know what it means, but you sort of have no idea. You think I'm going to, you know, you're probably wondering, where's his sword? Hey, Jesus, you know, you're the Messiah, you know, kind of missing a few items here. You know, where's the shield? Where's this? We're not the army, right? You know, I'm not not sure what we're supposed to do. I mean, Peter did act like a soldier once with a sword improperly. But here, from this point on, from the center of Mark's gospel, Jesus talks about, about the cross. In verse 32, I know it's not part of our text, but you can look down the page there. Starting in verse 32, he talks about his suffering, his rejection, his death and resurrection. Mark says, quote, plainly. No more hints. No more beating around the bush. He tells them, comes right out and says it. And I think that makes some sense of verse 30, where Jesus tells Peter and the rest, after this great glorious confession of Christ elsewhere, he says, you know, blessed are you, Peter, because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven... This is a great thing that God has revealed to you. But here he tells them to tell no one about him. Why would he tell them at this point, good job, Peter, now, don't say anything. Well, probably don't say anything. Tell no one about it is because Peter had all the wrong ideas, and the rest probably did too, about what kind of Christ he was going to be, about what he had come to do. You know, his confession of Christ was certainly true. Jesus doesn't, doesn't contradict it in any way, but they didn't really understand what was going to happen to this Christ. They certainly weren't expecting the cross, as you can see from Peter's reaction in verse 32. You know, basically, no, 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 not so, Lord, far be it from you. And Jesus had to tell him to get behind him, Satan, because he had in mind not the things of God, but the things of man. So the next thing Jesus tells his disciples and even the crowds, this wasn't just for the disciples anymore, it was for everybody, was of the cross and resurrection in the the verses that follow our passage this morning. You know, if they thought that Christ was coming to be a political or military savior, they were in for a rude awakening. He spoke not just of his cross, but of the need for anyone who would follow him. Verse 34, to deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. This is the kind of Christ he came to. To be, He came not to kill Roman occupiers, but to lay down his life for his sheep, and so to save his people from their sins. And that could not happen apart from the cross. Their worst enemy was not the Roman army. Their worst enemy was not Caesar or their circumstance. Their worst enemy and ours is always and ever shall be our sin and the evil one himself. So this morning I have to ask, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the very Son of God that took on flesh that, we, that he might live in our place, the life that we have failed to live, that he died in our place for our sins and was risen on the third day for our justification. Do you believe that Jesus was the long-awaited Christ, that he's the point of the entire Old Testament revelation of God 
in Scripture, that he is the only Savior of sinners, and that there is salvation to be found in his name alone. If you have not yet turned to him, turn from your sin, turn to him by faith, and live. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, all of it, that from start to finish, in one way, shape, or form, it all points us to Jesus Christ. It all, it all coalesces and is ultimately fulfilled in him. All these things in the Old Testament, there's types and shadows that are meant to point to him. We thank you that, that you reveal yourself to sinners such as us, that you reveal to us your will for our salvation in Christ. We thank you for the gospel, the good news of your grace and forgiveness and life for sinners like us that deserve the exact opposite. And we ask that you would give us grace more and more to understand what it means to confess Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of sinners. Help us to look to his, even to his offices as the Christ and take great comfort and encouragement from it, from those things that we might see and understand and believe more and more what Christ has done and is doing for the salvation of his people. We thank you that we have a great prophet, priest, and king ruling over all things, representing us from your right hand even now so that no one can ever lay a charge against God's elect. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.